tonight to tell you the truth, because I've been following up something, and the most of you will remember the report which we gave you last week about four teenagers in Greenhead, Indiana, who said that they were buzzed by flying saucers. Now, that story interested me very much, and, uh, and after going over the thing, I decided that it would stand a little bit of checking. For one thing, I didn't uh, exactly believe all of it, so I must have been now that I believe a great deal more of it, believe a great deal more of it, believe a great deal more of it, believe a great deal more of it. People who think they've been abducted and haven't are real abductions. They always take some possession belonging to the person. About six weeks after our abduction, Bonnie and I came home one night and on the kitchen table was a pile of dry leaves and my blue earrings I was wearing that night. So we knew, they knew where we lived. Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. I'm JT, and each week I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Well folks, I don't know about you, but when I hear things like that, that's Betty Hill there speaking, obviously, it just really freaks me out. I mean, the whole idea of the abduction phenomena, and that something can know where you are, or know where you live, and can basically follow you home. It's basically the epitome of fear to many people. And you hear about these UFO encounters and especially these abduction cases. And that's the biggest thing that tends to freak out the witnesses, that they'll follow them home, that they'll abduct their children or their loved ones or their family. And it goes through an, an intergenerational process where they follow the grandparents, the parents, the children, so on. Now, there are plenty of people out there that think it's all a bunch of hogwash and BS, so I guess to those people, they're not too concerned. But for those of us that are open and will at least contemplate the possibility that there is something beyond this world that we don't know about, be it interplanetary, interdimensional, intergalactic, or from a different universe, or a myriad of other possibilities, the fact that these entities, whatever they may be, could follow you home, could basically have you at their beck and call, and experiment on you as they wish. At the very least, it sends chills up and down my spine. So folks, last week, we covered the fascinating events that occurred in the White Mountains of New Hampshire on the night of the 19th through the 20th of, of September, 1961. When we finished up the episode, Betty and Barney had contacted the U.S. Air Force and a Major Paul W. Henderson of the 100th Bomb Wing at the Peace Base filed a Project Blue Book report regarding their sighting. Well, I'm sure you know by now, but there's much more to this case than lights in the sky and a paper trail. Now we're going to get into the shocking curveball involved in the case and the events that have caused astonishment, amazement, and plenty of controversy over the last 60 years. There's a reason that the Hill case has been one of the best known and the most controversial UFO cases of all time. Well, folks, I hope that you are doing well. I hope that everything's all right. 
We will be keeping it fairly brief tonight as far as the general show notes, just because got quite a long episode to get through, uh, several News of the Damned articles, and then as soon as I basically get this show finished, edited and uploaded, I've got to get straight into getting your Halloween Spooktacular episode done, recorded, and up so that you can have it in time for Halloween. So we won't go into a lot of depth on things in general, general what's going on in the world and everything else. But like I say, I hope that those of you all over the world that celebrate Halloween that find some joy in it, I hope you're enjoying yourself, and I hope that you've had a good spooky season, as the saying goes. And on that note, I've got a, I've got at least uh, one good ghost story for you, or a ghost uh, news article, the news of the dam tonight. Just going to give you a bit of a real quick rundown again about what's going on. So this is part two of the Betty and Barney Hill abduction case. So that's going to be out. And then in a day or two, you're going to get the Halloween Spooktacular episode, which is basically me telling you some of my experiences and also some stories and maybe they're urban legends. Maybe there's some truth to them behind some of the places that I lived in California and some of the encounters I heard from other people. Then after that, we'll see about the next week. Probably I want to get the Betty and Barney Hill case wrapped up, but last week's episode was about 12 pages of text, um, about 12 to 14,000 words. I got another 12 to 14,000 words tonight, and we won't be done after this episode. So it may be another episode. It may be another two episodes. But uh, anyway, after that, once we wrap up the Betty and Barney Hills stuff, then the next episode I put out will be an interview. I'm not quite sure which one yet. Got to get through this. Got to get through your Halloween spooktacular. I also need to do part two of the Pandora Papers. Basically, as I say, finish off that article that I started reading to you. And then I've got another kind of special segment to do. So yeah, it is very, very busy around here at Tower Studios right now. Still taking some me time, but um, yeah, definitely it's keeping me busy at the moment. So, uh, like I say, thank you to everyone around the world who's taken the time to listen, and thank you so much, all the kind people, all the countries, 75 plus and counting as we march towards 100. Thank you so much. I'd really like to get to 100 by the end of the year, but that might be a bit of a tall ask, especially as many of the low-hanging fruit, so to speak have already been filled. So most of Europe, most of South America have all already been listening to the Paranormal Sun. Still got four states in the U.S. to finish off. North Dakota, South Dakota, Wyoming, and what's the other one? Actually, folks, it's only three. I just had a double check, and it's only North Dakota, South Dakota, and Wyoming left. So, if you know anyone who's li- who from there who can give us a listen, I'd really appreciate it. I'd really like to be able to say I've had listens in all 50 U.S. states by the end of 2021. That would be really cool. And uh, I know we're kind of down to the last three states and, by population, three of the smaller states. But I would really appreciate it if, if we could uh, get that crossed off. Now, I do have a real quick shout-out. Thank you to Trey the chapter president in Portland, Oregon, 
Trey, thanks for sending me through so many wonderful articles for the News of the Damned. I've got a few of them saved, folks, for the Halloween Spooktacular, because they are ghost stories. And I've got a few more tonight that we're going to cover over. But again, if you want to know how you can support the show, first and foremost, tell someone who you think would enjoy what I do here. The boys over at the Old 77 in Jeff City done a lot of good work giving me shout-outs and support, and I really thank, thank you for it. I've seen a big upswing in listens from Jefferson City and the surrounding area, and I don't know a lot of people there outside of you guys from the Old 77, so thanks a lot for the shout-outs. I really do appreciate it. And folks, if you want to check out a good Halloween episode, I just listened to that the other night, the uh, the Old 77's Halloween episode. So go and check that out. That's quite That was quite a good one. They had a couple of guests on, and then they did some viewer ghost stories. I don't know if we'll have any this year on The Paranormal Sun. I haven't had any turn up in the inbox, but it is what it is. I've got some for you, so that's all right. I know everybody's busy, and life gets in the way a lot of times, so I fully understand when people don't have the time to get things sent in. So, like I say, you want to support the show, that's one great way. You can go and follow the link in the show notes of any episode, or go to Instagram and go on the profile of the Paranormal Sun, the underscore Paranormal underscore Sun. You can go in there and click on the same link that will take you to the same place. And there you can go and join and follow on everything, Facebook, Instagram, etc. Again, I fully admit that I get stretched a bit thin and I only have so much bandwidth mentally to deal with all of the different social media platforms. So I don't have a lot uploaded on YouTube, but the reality is the only thing I would upload on YouTube is these podcasts. So the best, like I say, the best uh, remedy for that is to just listen to the program on whatever podcast platform you enjoy, be it Spotify, be it Amazon Music, be it Apple iTunes, whatever it is. That's the best way. Just go and listen to it there. And like I say, the other thing that I've been amiss at doing, but I don't have any current Patreon, so it's not really hurting anyone. And that is getting the Patreon page sorted out. But in due time, I will get around to it. And uh, haven't had any Russian oligarchs turn up. Haven't had anybody send me any suitcases full of unmarked bills or anything like that. So sooner or later, I'm going to have to go back to work. And when that happens, uh, we'll just see. I don't quite know at this point what'll happen. Probably, like I say, we'll we'll have to see what we can balance with a 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 hour week on top of trying to do the podcast. I don't know if we'll do shorter shorter episodes or we'll just do them less frequently or what, but um, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. But again, if you want to support the show, those are some of the best ways. Sorry, folks, I'm babbling a bit and I'm a bit all over, but um, yeah, just got a lot on my mind with uh, with all of this content coming up in the near future. So without further ado, let's get into the news of the damned. Now, for those of you who don't know what the news of the damned is, there was a gentleman in the early 1900s in the U.S. named Charles Fort. Now, Charles Fort was interested in a lot of these things that we find so fascinating be they lights in the sky, or ghosts, or sea monsters, or people vanishing, or cryptids, 
or so many other things. Now, Charles Fort obviously lived in the time before the internet, so he gathered information from magazines and newspapers all over the world, and he gathered 30 or 40,000 of these cards, these index cards with notes on these different phenomena, and then he gathered them and wrote a series of books, either four or five books, I can never remember which it is. Now, Charles Fort referred to anything that is ignored or excluded by science as damned data. So if it's something that science just couldn't be bothered trying to explain or had no rational explanation and they just try to ignore it and hope it'll go away, they call it damned data. Therefore, every time we do this news segment, it's known as the news of the damned. All right, so the first article I've got here, I was also sent by Adrian and Nico in Texas, so thanks for sending it through. But being here in New Zealand, I saw it immediately, and it is one of those things that's we've got a saying here in New Zealand. Because we're a small country, we'll say this or that or this person or that person is world famous in New Zealand. In other words, it's well known here, but outside of the country, it's not nearly as well known. So astonishingly, Adriana and Nico saw this article, um, maybe not the exact same article, but they saw the story, and uh, I found it quite humorous that they did. So, hey, it's pretty cool. that it, uh, it, is, it is an offbeat story, so I can understand why it's not, um, why it is something really different and why you might pick it up on your local uh, news outlet. But nonetheless, this one is from... Uh, let's see, where's this from? MSN.com. And this one is titled, New Zealand City Council lays off only state-appointed wizard in the world. Now, this is the Wizard of Christchurch. Now, when I went down and was doing touristy things in Christchurch, I've been down quite a few times since then for business, but not really tourist time. So, um... I have never, I never got a chance to meet the Wizard of Christchurch, but apparently he's quite an eccentric um, person. I was always told that it's like kind of a flower child type, 60s uh, hippie type person, and that he would give people tours around in that, uh, and that he actually did get a small stipend from the city council. But I don't know all the details, so having my very limited knowledge... Let's go into this and see if um, we find out more. Now, when I was there, we were there for a week and a half, 10-ish days, I want to say. And we probably spent six to seven of those days actually in Christchurch. But when we were down there, the wizard wasn't around, so we didn't see him in Cathedral Square or around down in that area at the time. This was pre-earthquake. So, yeah, it was uh, a lot different back then, obviously. So, it says, oh, sorry, this was written by Lexi Lonis. So, it says, A New Zealand city council has laid off the only state-appointed wizard in the world after years of service. The city of Christchurch has laid off the wizard, whose real name is Ian Breckenbury Chanel, 
the 20 with after 23 years of service to the city the guardian reported each year the city paid him $11,280 so us that's about seven and a half, eight grand, something like that, with Chanel earning 368000 on a tax-free status. So he'd get 11280 a year, but he didn't pay taxes on it. Council spokesperson uh, Lynn McClelland said the wizard was sent a letter thanking him and saying he will forever be a part of Christchurch history, which is true. Very well known down there. And like I say, just in New Zealand in general. The Wizard has been a big tourist attraction for the city, with the New Zealand Art Gallery Directors Association declaring him a living work of art in 1982. Wow, so I was five, and the man was already declared a living work of art. However, comments he made about women have caused his contract with the city to end. Okay, I thought it might have to do with COVID, but um, yeah, obviously he's had some... Gotta understand, when you're in the public forum, you've got to be careful what you say, people. I love women. I forgive them all the time. I've never struck one yet. Never strike a woman because they bruise too easily is the first thing. And they'll tell the neighbors and their friends, and then you're in big trouble. Yeah, um, gee, I wonder why he's in trouble. Yeah, that's not the, the most clever thing to say there. The wizard said in April on New Zealand Today, The wizard has not been present in the city as much in recent years and said the council wouldn't listen to suggestions to improve tourism. The wizard said he was told he doesn't fit the vibes of the city anymore. It's just they don't like me because they are boring old bureaucrats and everyone likes likes me and no one likes them, he said. He plans to continue interacting with the public despite the ending contract. Well, that's, that's kind of cool that he's going to continue to do things with the public. But on the other hand... Um, I hope he's smart enough to know that you don't go saying things like that in public. Joking or not joking, you got to understand in this day and age, people, there's lots of people that don't take it as a joke. And even in the past where people may have just overlooked it and said, oh, well, the person's a bit eccentric or whatever. They're not, they're not going to put up with that nowadays. And nor, nor should they. I'm not saying that you should just put up with it and deal with it. But yeah, he's, you've got to move with the times, my friends. And obviously, in this instance, he he didn't move with the times. And he lost his, um, it's not a massive amount of money, but that's a pretty good earner. That's uh, about $1,000 a month, more or less. I'd, I'd love to have that. If the city paid me 1000 bucks a month to do the podcast, that'd be great. I could get by on that. Rightio, especially tax-free. So on to the next one. And this one is one of the ones that Trey sent me. So thank you, Trey. And this is from Live Science. And there's quite a few from Live Science here. And uh, I, I do find a lot of things from Live Science as well. So thanks, Trey. And this is a while ago because Trey sent me a pretty steady stream of emails. I just haven't got a chance to read any of these on the show. So this one is titled, A Group of Violent Otters is Mysteriously Attacking People and Dogs in Alaska. This was by Ben Turner. It says three otter attacks were reported in September alone. Now, I don't know if they'll go into it in this article, folks, but bear in mind that in Alaskan uh, Native American myth, there is a story of otter people. There is a there is a uh, what do you, a tradition of this of these otter people that live as a separate tribe. So we'll see if they talk about it at all. 
So it says state authorities are searching for a group of violent river otters. Lutra canadidis. Can, can, canadensis. Sorry. My Latin isn't as good as it should be. That's why I don't go summoning anything. And instead of uh, getting a club sandwich, I might get a... Uh, might, I might get Beelzebub or something, so I don't go summoning much around here, especially if it is anything to do with Latin I struggle with. So anyway, uh, Lutra Can Canadensis that have been mysteriously attacking adults, children, and dogs in Anchorage, Alaska. Three otter attacks, including one which injured a child, were reported across the city in September, leading officials from the Alaska Department of Fish and Game to ask residents to be alert around local lakes and rivers. Nine-year-old Aiden Fernandez was filming four otters in a duck pond with his brothers when one of the animals split from its group and attacked him. He tripped and fell as he was chased, and the otter pounced on him. He has two fang marks on his back thigh, and one on the front thigh on each leg, his mother Tiffany Hernandez told the Anchorage Daily News. He has one puncture wound on his foot. He ended up falling as he was running away and the otter got him on his back. Aiden was taken to the emergency room, where he received a rabies vaccination and booster. Two more attacks followed later in the month, both occurring on the same day, according to the ADFG. In the first, an otter bit a woman who was rescuing her dog from the group. In the second, reported from the same lake, otters attacked the second dog. This isn't the first time that otters have attacked dogs in the city. In two separate incidents in 2019, two dogs, one Labradoodle, and a Husky mix were attacked and pulled underwater by otters. Wow. Uh, and a Husky, that's a pretty big dog, while swimming in lakes in Anchorage, HuffPorst reported. The owner of the Husky mix had to jump in after his animal to fight off the otters. Both dogs survived, but had received bites and slashes that required multiple stitches. Although no one knows how many otters are behind these incidents, David Battle, a wildlife biologist at the ADFG, suspects that it may just may be just one group. There always seem to have been four or five otters involved in all the incidents, Battle told Live Science, considering the rarity of this behavior in otters and the fact that our first reported attack was in 2019, and it's happened several times since then, this is very likely one group that has stayed together for a while and has come together frequently over a period of time. Otter groups tend to consist of either a mother with pups or several bachelor males. Battle said that as multiple otters were reported engaging in attacks, it's likely the group is a collection of adult otters, as opposed to a mother otter defending her young. Given the involvement of dogs in nearly all of the incidents, the most probable explanation for the otter's aggressive behavior is a defensive reaction to the dogs. That makes sense. Most otters never display this stronger reaction to dogs or people. By and large, they are curious animals, but not typically aggressive toward people or dogs, Battle said. It's possible there was some sort of incident involving a dog that led them down this path, after which the otters learned to take aggressive action against dogs, but it's impossible to say. A 2011 analysis by the Oceanographic Environmental Research Society found that since 1875, people have reported 39 wild otter attacks across the United States. Of these, 15 took place in Florida alone. Really surprised. I wouldn't think of Florida when I think of otters, but um, just goes to show. And 24 of the assailant otters had rabies. Otters usually only inflict minor injuries on humans, and none of the attacks were fatal. But in one of the most extreme cases, a victim of a particularly brutal otter attack 
had to receive nearly 200 stitches. That's nuts. In a notable case in 2018, a 77-year-old Florida woman was viciously attacked by an otter while paddleboarding in Florida. I shouldn't laugh, but it's... Just imagine, you know, being the one going into the doctor or whatever. It's like, oh, what happened here? I got attacked by an otter. That's that's why I'm having a bit of a chuckle. Um, look, I grew up in the country. I grew up in the woods, and, and I know that lots of animals we may not, people may not think of as being aggressive can be in, in the right circumstances, especially anything to do with their young or their territory. But yeah, it's just, um, it, it just boggles the mind to just see how bad some of these are. 200 stitches is a, is that, I mean, that is a pretty rough encounter. So it says the ADFG are searching for the otter group responsible for this most recent spate of attacks. But Battle believes that given the animal's lack of any fixed territory, as well as their ability to move extensively throughout interconnected waterways, tracking them down could be tough. Once the otters are found, the ADFG says it will remove individuals from the group, testing any otters killed in the process for rabies. Identifying the individuals involved will most likely be a matter of responding to sightings and evaluating behavior when we're able to catch up to them, what their reaction is to the presence of people, dogs, etc., he said. So yeah, interesting little article there. Watch yourself, especially the Alaska listeners. Watch yourself around those otters. Got to be careful. We don't have any here, I don't think, aside from maybe in the zoo. So I think I'm pretty safe down here. Um, We did have uh, beavers. Well, we had otters as well, but we had beavers where I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. And they can get very aggressive. People who don't think that they can. Yeah. Don't get in their way. Okay, so the next one is also from Live Science. Also from Trey. Thank you, Trey. And I think I did mention this in the past because this is from March. It says, Starving monkey gangs battle in Thailand as coronavirus keeps tourists away. And this is from Brandon Spector. Tourism is down in the ancient city of Lopburi, and the local monkeys are going ape. So it says, in one of the more unusual incidents being attributed to the new coronavirus outbreak, a turf war between dozens of street monkeys and temple monkeys broke out in Thailand's historic city of Lopburi on Thursday, and that was March the 12th. According to city residents, the furry fracas likely resulted in a sharp, sharp dip in tourism to the 800-year-old city, and thus a dip in free food offerings to thousands of local monkeys. It's the summer, so usually we see a lot of tourists. But now, because of the outbreak, there's so few that the markets are very quiet. Sasaluk uh, Ratanache, who posted a video of the brawl online, told Thai news site uh, Sad English, Not enough tourists come to leave food for the monkeys at the temple. Thousands of crab-eating macaques, Maca fascularis, live in Lopburi in the nearby Pra Prong Sam Yat Temple Complex which dates to the 13th century. And yeah, uh, the video's in this. So you can watch the video if you want. But um, wow. Yeah, they're getting pretty, <laughs> getting pretty, pretty wild. It's, um, it's better acting than you'll see in a lot of wrestling matches, I'll tell you that much. But uh, then they're not acting. They're fighting over food, which dates to the 13th century. Both groups are used to being fed human food by the hundreds of tourists who visit the site every day. The city even hosts an annual monkey buffet festival where visitors construct elaborate towers of fruits and vegetables 
for the temple monkeys to feast on. But with tourism to the area down, even the macaques are feeling the squeeze. On Thursday, a gang of dozens of invading temple monkeys entered the town in search of food, eventually brawling in the street with the town's local monkey population. What were they squabbling over? A single yogurt cup. The fight stopped traffic for 10 minutes as paws flew and screeches filled the air. I haven't seen a, flight, a fight like this for many years that I can remember, one local told the news site. Normally, the fights involve 5 to 10 monkeys, and it looks like hundreds, well, at least 100 in that video that I was just watching. By late in the day, city residents laid out additional food offerings at the temple, and the monkey crowd largely dispersed. About 39 million tourists visited Thailand last year. More than 10 million of those tourists were Chinese. Ongoing travel bans in China and increasingly around the world have seriously hampered Thailand's tourism industry. So, yeah, I'm not sure if it's still going on, but I'm sure the tourist numbers are still well down, even if there are people going there now. So probably been more monkey brawls going on in Thailand. I can see a series of YouTube films coming out soon. Rightio. Okay, this one's from Trey as well. And I hadn't heard this one, so thank you, Trey. This is a fairly new one. This is from September the 25th, also from Live Science. And again, folks... I forgot to mention it, but all of these episodes, there's always a link in the show notes. So you can basically just go in the show notes and click on the link to the articles if you want to read them yourself. And this is by Harry Baker. And it says, Cavers discover snakes and waterfalls inside Yemen's infamous Well of Hell in World First Descent. Many local people believe the enormous pit is a prison for genies and a gateway to the underworld, or jinns. And then there's a photo of it, and yeah, I, I mean, when you look at that photo, it looks like it's been dug by, you know, it's round. So what I'm saying is it doesn't just look like a hole in the ground. It, it looks like someone or something dug that. So it says, cave explorers from Oman have become the first individuals to descend to the bottom of the 367-foot or 112-meter deep Well of Hell sinkhole in Yemen which many local people believe is a genie-infested gateway to the underworld, according to news reports. The natural sinkhole, officially known as the Well of Barhout, has an eerily circular entrance that spans 98 feet or 30 meters in diameter and is located in the middle of the desert in Al-Mahara province in eastern Yemen, close to the border with Oman. Amateur cave explorers have entered the sinkhole before, but until now, nobody was was known to have made it all the way to the bottom. Last week, a team of 10 explorers from the Omani Caves exploration team explored the well of Barhout Bar Bar using a pulley system that lowered eight of the members to the bottom, while the remaining two stayed at the top. A small crowd of intrepid spectators gathered to watch the event, despite local fears surrounding the sinkhole. A video of the explorers descending into the cave was shared by the BBC. Passion drove us to do this. Mohammed Al-Kindi, a geology professor at the German University of Technology in Oman, who is part of the OCET team, told French agency AFP, sorry, French news agency AFP, and we felt that this is something that will reveal a new wonder and part of Yemeni history. The explorers reported finding waterfalls, snakes, dead animals, stalagmites, and cave pearls, 
but unsurprisingly, they did not find any genies or a doorway into hell. Local myths. The exact age of the well of Barhout is currently unknown, but it is likely millions of years old, according to the AFP. Many local myths have sprung up to explain the sinkhole, as they do just about everywhere in the world for these natural phenomena, much of which describe it as a, a prison for jinn, or genies, which causes bad luck as a result. Some people also believe that if they get too close, the sinkhole can pull people inside. Others claim that the gapping hole is a supervolcano capable of destroying the Earth. According to AFP, although there is no scientific evidence to back this up, in the past, people have also reported a foul smell rising from the large hole, something that spurred stories about it being a gateway to hell, leading to its nickname. However, in reality, the well of Bauhaut is a fairly typical sinkhole. And then it goes into, talks about how sinkholes form, which is basically, uh, just going to kind of gloss over this. Um... Collapsed sinkholes form when voids in the bedrock below the surface expand so much that the roof above is no longer supported and the rock and underlying sediment suddenly collapses into the cave. Okay. Exploring the cave. This is the interesting part. As the OCET team descended into the sinkhole, they arrived on an uneven and jagged floor covered in stalagmites, some of which reached 30 feet or 9 meters tall. According to the Omani newspaper Muscat Daily, some parts of the floor were also covered in cave pearls, which are also a type of speleothems, structures in caves such as stalagmites and stalactites. I was wondering what a cave pearl was. That formed from the gradual buildup of minerals such as calcium carbonate from dripping water. They, cave pearls, form from dripping or flowing water as concentric layers of mineral, usually around some kind of nucleus. Leslie Mel Melham, a geologist at Western Illinois University who specializes in cave pearls, told Live Science, Practically anything can act as a nucleus, whatever is present in the cave or mine. Since the nucleus is loose, minerals can grow entirely around the grain, which starts a pearl forming. Cave pearls are uncommon and can grow only on parts of the cave floor that are completely flat, so that the nucleus doesn't move around, Melham said. From inside the sinkhole, the team also discovered that water emerges from several holes in the cave walls at around 213 feet or 65 meters below the surface, creating small waterfalls, according to Muscat Daily. This provides the dripping water needed for the speleothems, stalagmites, and cave pearls to form. The explorers also reported seeing snakes, frogs, and beetles inside the cave, as well as several dead animals, mainly birds, that appeared to have fallen inside the pit. The rotting corpses could have caused the stench reported by locals. The team took samples that may also reveal further information on the sinkhole and how it formed. We collected samples of water, rock, soil, and some dead animals, but have yet to have them analyzed, Al Kindi told AFP. A final report on the exploration of the well of Barhout is expected in the coming weeks. So yeah, interesting. And it is interesting that no one had actually been down to the bottom. It just goes to show that even in this day, there are places on the world that aren't fully explored. It's interesting. Okay, so now the next one here is from the AP News, and I saw this come up in my news feed on my phone last week. might have been the week before, and I've also had it sent to me, very interesting article. 
And this one is Israeli scuba diver discovers ancient crusader's sword. And this is from the AP. And this was on the 20th of October. So it says, Jerusalem, an Israeli scuba diver has salvaged an ancient sword off the country's Mediterranean coast that experts say dates back to the Crusaders. Israel's Antiquities Authority said Monday the man was on a weekend dive in northern Israel when he spotted a trove of ancient artifacts that included anchors, pottery, and a meter long, or that's a yard or three feet in uh, the U.S., sword. The diver was about 150 meters off the coast, which is 170 yards, in 5 meter deep water, which is 5.5 yards deep. I love how instead of going meters to feet, they're like, oh, let's go meters to yards. <laughs> uh, gotta love it. Uh, when he made the discovery. Experts say the area provided shelter for ancient ships in his home for many archaeological treasures, some dating back 4,000 years. But such discoveries can be elusive because of the constantly shifting sands. Fearing his discovery might be buried, the diver took the sword ashore and delivered it to government experts. The weapon is estimated to be 900 years old. So we're talking about, was that um, 1200s? Yeah, that'd definitely be in the Crusaders. It was found encrusted with marine organisms, but is apparently made of iron, said Nir Distefeld, an inspector in the authority's robbery prevention unit. It is exciting to encounter such a personal object, taking you 900 years back in time to a different era, with knights, armor, and swords. The sword is to be cleaned and further analyzed, while the diver, identified as Shlomi Katzin, was given a certificate of appreciation for his good citizenship. Because again, you do get a lot of things like this that are lost to us as a group because they end up in some rich person's collection hidden away in their home. And they've got a slideshow of this sword. And I've seen a lot of things like this because hidden treasures always fascinated me. And I've seen a lot of encrusted items, especially to do with the Spanish uh, treasure fleets in the Caribbean. And this sword looks to be in very good condition for its age. And I'm sure once they get done treating it, it's going to look really, it's going to be in really good shape for something that old. So I will wait with bated breath while usually takes a few years before they actually do the all of the acid removal or whatever it is they, they use to remove the coral buildup and that. The interesting story. And again, it just goes to show that on any given day, there's still history all around us to be discovered. Rightio, so I heard this on... Th there's a tie-in to this uh, with the Old 77 podcast. And that was that on the Old 77 podcast, they were doing some trivia with their guests on their Halloween special. And the question was, what were jack-o'-lanterns originally carved out of? And Scott, hey, Scott, man, tip my cap to you. You were right. Originally carved out of turnips. So when I saw this news article, I had to make sure to in include it in tonight's show. And again, it's Halloween, so we've got to have some Halloween-themed articles. And this one is from the Smithsonian Magazine. And it says... When people carve turnips instead of pumpkins for Halloween. Revelers in Ireland transformed the root vegetables into lanterns designed to ward off dark spirits. And it's from Jennifer Nalawecki and from October the 22nd of this year. So six days ago. 
And then they've got a photo of one of these turnips. It says a plaster cast. Well, okay, so it's not the turnip. It's a plaster cast of the turnip. Ghost turnip carving from Donegal, Ireland, it says. So today, carving pumpkins into jack-o'-lanterns is ubiquitous with Halloween. In the 20th, in the early, in, sorry, in the 19th and early 20th centuries, however, chiseling ghoulish grins into turnips was the more common practice, at least in Ireland and other Celtic nations. The spooky tradition was part of Samhain, an ancient pagan festival that marked the end of summer and the beginning of the Celtic New Year and long winter ahead. Samhain translates to summer's end in Gaelic. Kicking off at sundown on October the 31st and continuing through November the 1st, Samhain ushered in the transition from the autumn equinox to the winter solstice. During those two days, ancient Celts believed that the veil between life and death was at its narrowest, allowing spirits to roam freely between both realms. Celts approached this turning point with both anticipation and dread, fearing that they would unknowingly cross paths with wayward fairies, monsters, or ancestral spirits. A particularly ominous entity was Stingy Jack, who is believed to have tricked the devil for his own monetary gain, writes Sidney Grunin for Encyclopedia Britannica. Because of this, God banned him from heaven, and the devil banned him from hell, forcing him to roam earth for eternity. So, because he was... <laughs> So because he was he was so good at tricking the devil, um, God didn't trust him and the devil didn't trust him. So um said, yeah, you just roam the earth, buddy. That's <laughs> uh, very pragmatic of both of them. For protection from Stingy Jack and other apparitions, people in the British Isles began carving faces into pieces of produce, particularly turnips, but in some cases potatoes, radishes, and beets. Celebrants placed lit candles inside the cavities, similar to the pumpkin jack-o'-lanterns of modern Halloween. They believed leaving the spooking carvings outside their homes or carrying them as lanterns would protect them from harm's way while offering a flicker of light that could cut through their dark surroundings. Metal lanterns were quite expensive, so people would hollow out root vegetables. Nathan Mannion, a senior curator at Epic, the Irish Migration Museum, told National Geographic's Blaine Bachelor last year. Over time, people started to carve faces and designs to allow light to shine through the holes without extinguishing the amber. According to Sarah MacDonald of Catholic News Service, the National Museum of Ireland, Country Life, and County Mayo houses a plaster cast of a turnip carving with a pinched, angry face in its collections. The records we have for the original lantern from Donegal show it was donated in 1943 by a school teacher in the village of Fintown who said she was donating it because nobody was making this type of lantern anymore, which is looks to be true. Though it was a tradition that was remembered in the area. Claudic Doyle, keeper of the National Museum of Ireland's Irish Folklore Division, told CNS in 2017, Curators made a cast of the ghost turnip, which dated to the turn of the 20th century, and was close to disintegration. Root vegetable carvings were just one aspect of Sahwain, Revelers also built bonfires and used food and drinks as bribes should they come across anything inhuman lurking in the night. Dressing up in costume was a current practice during the raucous event, presaging the costume-wearing tradition of today. Additionally, wrote Kirsten Fawcett for Mental Floss in 2016, Celtic priests or druids practiced divination rituals and conducted rites to keep ghosts at bay, sorry, ghouls at bay, but since they didn't keep written records, Many of these practices remain shrouded in mystery. 
Over the centuries, Sahwain transformed into All Hallows' Eve, the evening before November at 1 and what is now called Halloween. But the practice of carving jack-o'-lanterns, albeit in a slightly different medium, stuck and remains an iconic part of the bewitching autumn holiday. Halloween is one of the few festivals of the calendar year that is still practiced in much the same way as it was for generations, says Doyle in a museum statement. Before electricity, the countryside was a very dark place, adding to the scariness of the festival. Yeah, folks, and I think that we as modern people, and even I am guilty of this at times, even though I grew up in the country, we forget how dark and dreary things were back then. You would have had very little light even in your house. You weren't going to burn candles or lanterns for just no reason. You only really used it after dark to do things like maybe eating or things like that, reading the Bible, whatever it was, before you went to bed. And you weren't wasting the lights for no reason. So I think people tend to forget just how dark and ominous those nights could be, especially those very short days in the winter in the far north and far south for that matter. So we've got one more here, which is also very much into the Halloween spirit. And this one is from unexplainedmysteries.com. For long-term listeners to the program, you'll know that at St. Patrick's Day this year, I covered over the Banshee. Well, the Banshee is Irish and Scott, so it's not just one country or the other. It's a bit like vampires. They're not only from Romania or not only in Romanian folklore. So this one I found quite interesting, and it fits perfectly into October and Halloween. And it says, Scotland's most haunted pub, named after Banshee Encounter. This is from October the 24th. And it says, the notoriously haunted establishment is reportedly home to all manner of paranormal happenings. Nestled among the buildings on Nidri Street in Edinburgh, Scotland, the Banshee Labyrinth is perhaps the quintessential definition of a haunted pub. Those who work at and frequent this outwardly quaint establishment have reported all manner of supernatural occurrences, ranging from glasses throwing themselves across the room to creepy, disembodied sounds, that can be heard in the corridors in the middle of the night. Every good ha haunted pub also needs its own sinister history, and the Banshee Labyrinth is no exception. Constructed directly into part of the infamous Edinburgh vaults, the building was once frequented by all manner of near-duels, including thieves, murderers, and even witch hunters. Some believe that the spirits who frequent the pub today are those of the women who were wrongfully accused of witchcraft before being put to death with no hope of appeal or escape. One particularly famous encounter while renovation work was being carried out. One of the workmen reported that he had seen a crying woman inside the building, but when he went over to check on her, she lifted her head, revealing pale skin and empty eye sockets. She let out a piercing, hellish scream, prompting the man to flee in terror. Smart man. The story goes that only a few minutes later, he received a phone call to tell him that a member of his family had passed away. The incident prompted the pub's owners to change its name to the Banshee Labyrinth soon after. So that's a good little story, folks. And yeah, I, I, Scotland's on my bucket list. The UK is on my bucket list. So hopefully one day I'll be able to have a pint in the Banshee's Labyrinth in Edinburgh. And I hope that you enjoyed those stories, folks. Always try and bring you something new for the news of the damned. Again, thank you very much to Trey 
for sending me all the wonderful articles. I really do appreciate it, my friend. And when we come back from break, get yourself a nice drink, be it an adult beverage or a hot coffee or tea or whatever you want to drink. Maybe get yourself some snacks and sit back and relax as we get into the second part of the Betty and Barney Hill encounter from 1961. Good evening. I'm David Schoenbrunn. We're gathered together tonight to hear an extraordinary story, one of the most fascinating stories in the history of man. Whether it is true or false is something that you will judge after you've heard the story and a discussion of it by a panel of scientists and science editors. The story will be told by the two people who have lived it. First, Mr. Barney Hill and his wife, Betty Hill. Barney and Betty Hill are two of many Americans who claim to have seen an unidentified flying object. Their story was written up for them by John Fuller, author, columnist, and this will then be examined and discussed by a panel of experts. Let's now meet our experts. Dr. Leo Sprinkle, counselor and assistant professor of psychology at the University of Wyoming. Mr. Edward Edelson, science editor of the World Journal Tribune of New York. Professor James McDonald, an atmospheric physics professor at the University of Arizona. Mr. Leon Jaroff, science editor of Time magazine. And Carl Sagan, professor at Harvard University and also at the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory. Now, Mr. and Mrs. Hill, for your story. I don't know if we even mentioned UFOs. It was to find out why Barney was emotionally upset. Betty Hill, on seeking professional help, for the issues caused by the events of that night. Now, folks, talk about a panel of experts interviewing Betty and Barney Hill, Leo Sprinkle, James McDonald, Carl Sagan. If you're interested in UFOs and you haven't heard of those three men, or at least one or two of them, I'd be surprised. In a future episode, I'll be playing that recording for you in its entirety, so you can listen and judge for yourself as to their story, and also what the experts thought and the questions they asked. It's about a 45-minute clip, so we don't have time for it on this episode, but I'll be playing it for you in future, as well as some other ones. This is really, like I say, this is a very deep and thorough case, so there's lots of information out there. So when we left off the story of Betty and Barney Hill, they had discovered some strange anomalies with the car, which they had taken on their road trip. After speaking with Betty's sister, who had a UFO encounter a few years before herself, they had spoken with an officer on nearby Peace Air Force Base and had filed an official report, which would later be included in Project Blue Book. It was only one of many sightings in the region during that month. The couple still struggled to find some correlation between fantasy and fact, and Barney suggested to Betty that they each draw a sketch of their impressions of the object. Betty agreed. Sitting in separate rooms, they roughed out two sketches, which, when compared, were remarkably similar. Even though Barney's lengthy conversation with the Air Force Major reinforced his confidence in his own sighting, he still wasn't a full believer in unidentified flying objects. He worried about his inability to justify what he actually saw with his conviction that such a thing could not be possible. Betty, too, was cautious in spite of her belief in her sister's sighting and in the inexplicable actions of the object 
that had stayed so long in sight on the highway that night. Barney told a friend that his reaction was one of a person who saw something he doesn't want to remember. Later this dichotomy was to bother him, to reflect itself in the worsening of his ulcer condition that up to this point had been improving considerably. Where Barney recoiled from the situation, Betty's curiosity was ignited. Two days later, she went to the library to find any possible information on unidentified flying objects, which had, to her knowledge, been receiving rather condescending treatment in the press. Like most intelligent people, she was of two minds about the subject. She had felt prior to their own startling experience that there had to be something to the phenomena, but of any extensive facts about the subject, she knew nothing. At the library, she discovered that background material was sparse. However, a book by Major Donald Kehoe, titled The Flying Saucer Conspiracy, commanded her attention. She took it home to read it in a single sitting. Barney, although his viewpoint had softened since he talked with the Air Force Base, declined to read it. The lingering resistance he ascribed to his continued desire to avoid the painfulness of the shock he had encountered. He was not, he insisted, trying to be arbitrary or stubborn. Major Kehoe's thesis in the book, Betty discovered, indicated that the Air Force was making a serious effort to discredit all UFO sightings at the expense of open scientific inquiry. And folks, anyone who's been following UFOs, and even if you've just been listening to this program, you know that it is something that crops up time and time again before 1961 and obviously well after it. It's just an ongoing thing with the Air Force and the U.S. government and indeed many governments all over the world. They just want to discredit the UFO phenomena and explain it away. A former Annapolis graduate and Marine Corps major, Kehoe was instrumental in establishing an organization known as the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. Now, you may have heard of them under the acronym of NICAP. In Washington, to correlate and analyze every available UFO sighting in an attempt to find a solution to the mystery and to prepare the public, if necessary, for the possibility that the objects may be extraterrestrial spacecraft of unknown origin. NICAP arrived at the conclusion that there are basically only two explanations for the consistent worldwide reporting of UFOs every year. Either one, widespread and presently unaccountable delusion on a scale so vast that it should be, in itself, a matter of urgent scientific study, or, second, people are seeing, maneuvering, apparently controlled objects in the atmosphere. Members of NICAP, many of whom were reputable scientists, professors, technicians, pilots, and former high-ranking military officers, argued that the second hypothesis is the more reasonable, and that it was grounded on empirical observations. In its carefully documented study, The UFO Evidence, the organization had analyzed 575 technical and other reliable reports from 46 U.S. states, Puerto Rico, Mexico, Canada, and many other countries throughout the world. NICAP investigators, serving on a voluntary basis, were instructed to document each case in painstaking detail and to contest, wherever possible, any wild and irresponsible reports of sightings from the lunatic fringe that is so frequently seized on the subject for either self-aggrandizement or for profit. Among the members of NICAP's Board of Governors were Drs. Charles P. Oliver, Professor Emeritus of Astrology at the University of Pennsylvania 
and president of the American Meteor Society, J.B. Hartdraft, Jr., president of the Aircraft Owner and Pilot Association and former lieutenant colonel in the Air- Army Air Corps, Dewey Fournay, former major, U.S. Air Force in charge of the UFO investigation known as Project Blue Book, Professor Charles A. Manny, head of the Department of Physics, Defiance College, Ohio, as well as many others. On reading Major Kehoe's book, Betty gained more confidence in her own experience. She lost little time sitting down to write him the following letter. Portsmouth, New Hampshire, September 26, 1961. Dear Major Kehoe, The purpose of this letter is twofold. We wish to inquire if you have written any more books about unidentified flying objects since The Flying Saucer Conspiracy was published. If so... It would certainly be appreciated if you would send us the name of the publisher, as we have been unsuccessful in finding any information more up-to-date than this book. A stamped, self-addressed envelope is being included for your convenience. My husband and I have become immensely interested in this topic, as we recently had quite a frightening experience, which does seem to differ from others of which we are aware. About midnight on September the 20th, 1961, We were driving in a national forest area in the White Mountains in New Hampshire. This is a desolate, uninhabited area. At first we noticed a bright object in the sky which seemed to be moving rapidly. We stopped our car and we got out to observe it more closely with our binoculars. Suddenly it reversed its flight from the north to the southwest and appeared to be flying in a very erratic pattern. As we continued driving and then stopped to watch it, we observed the following flight pattern. The object was spinning and appeared to be lighted only on one side, which gave it a twinkling effect. As it approached our car, we stopped again. As it hovered in the air in front of us, it appeared to be pancake in shape, ringed with windows in the front through which we could see bright blue-white lights. Suddenly, two red lights appeared on each side. By this time, my husband was standing in the road, watching closely. He saw wings protrude on each side, and the red lights were on the wingtips. As it glided closer, he was able to see inside the object, but not too closely. He did see several figures scurrying about as though they were making some hurried type of preparation. One figure was observing us from the windows. From the distance this was seen, the figures appeared to be about the size of a pencil held at arm's length and seemed to be dressed in some type of shiny black uniform. At this point, my husband became shocked and got back in the car in a hysterical condition, laughing and repeating that they were going to capture us. He started driving the car. The motor had been left running. As we started to move, we heard several buzzing or beeping sounds, which seemed to be striking the trunk of our car. We did not observe this object leaving, but we did not see it again. Although about 30 miles further south, we were again bombarded by those same beeping sounds. The next day, we did make a report to the Air Force officer to an Air Force officer, who seemed to be very interested in the wings and red lights. We did not report my husband's observation of the interior, as it seems too fantastic to be true. At this time, we are searching for any clue that might be helpful to my husband in recalling whatever it was that he saw that caused him to panic. His mind has completely blacked out at this point. Every attempt to recall leaves him very frightened. This flying object was at least as large as a four-motor plane. Its flight was noiseless, and the lighting of the interior interior did not reflect on the ground. 
There does not appear to be any damage to our car from the beeping sounds. We both have been quite frightened by the experience, but fascinated. We feel a compelling urge to return to the spot where this occurred in the hope that we may again come in contact with this object. We realize this possibility is slight, and we should, however, ask if you have more recent information regarding developments in the last six years. Any suggested reading would be greatly appreciated. Your book has been of great help to us and a reassurance that we are not the only ones to have undergone an interesting and informative experience. Very truly yours, Mrs. Barney Hill. As Betty Hill's confidence increased through her study of the NICAP material, so did her willingness to reveal more of the details. For the first time in this letter, she was willing to talk about Barney's description of the figures within the craft, although she did so with Barney's extremely reluctant approval. Betty's capacity for venting her feelings about the incident was helpful. Barney found himself envying her ability to do so, aware that suppressing the facts in his mind could be damaging. Some ten days after the sighting, Betty began having a series of vivid dreams. They continued for five successive nights. Never in her memory had she recalled dreams of such detail and intensity. They dominated her waking life during the week and continued to plague her afterwards, but they stopped abruptly after five days and never returned. In a sense, they assumed the proportion of nightmares. They were so awesome and of such magnitude that she hesitated to mention them to Barney, who was working those five nights and not with her when the dreams took place. When she eventually did mention rather casually that she was having a series of nightmares, Barney was sympathetic but not too concerned, and the matter was dropped. Betty did not press the matter further. A few weeks later, another puzzling incident occurred that neither Barney nor Betty could explain. They were driving in the car through the countryside near Portsmouth, on a road in a sparsely populated area. Up ahead of them, a parked car was partially blocking the road. A group of people were standing outside the car and Barney began to slow down gradually to avoid an accident. Suddenly, Betty was overcome by fear. She could not explain it, even to herself. Barney, she said. Barney, keep going. Please don't slow down. Keep going. Keep going. And she found herself starting to open the car door on the passenger side, with an almost uncontrollable impulse to jump out of the car and run. Barney was startled and tried to find out what was wrong. Betty was nearing a state of panic. Without asking any more questions, Barney speeded up as fast as was practicable, with people partially blocking the road, and Betty recovered her equilibrium. What disturbed her most was that she was not at all inclined to be this emotional. She had never before or since experienced such a sensation. The, um, the impact of the unexplainable incident stayed with them for many days afterward, as well as the effect of the nightmares on Betty that still persisted. Realizing that Barney was attempting to put the UFO event out of his mind, Betty refrained from discussing the nightmares with him, but she began telling a few close friends, one of whom was a fellow social worker, who urged her to write down her dreams. Feeling that this might relieve her conscious preoccupation with them, she sat down at her typewriter and wrote. Her dreams were unusual in subject matter and detail. They revealed that she encountered a strange roadblock on a lonely New Hampshire road as a group of men approached the car. The men were all dressed alike. As soon as they reached the car, she slipped into unconsciousness. She woke to find herself and Barney being taken aboard a wholly strange craft, where she was given a complete physical examination 
by intelligent humanoid beings. Barney was taken off down a corridor, curving to the contour of the ship, for apparently the same reason. They were assured in the dream that no harm would come to them, and they would be released without any conscious memory of the strange happening. Betty's written paper on the dreams was in complete detail, with full descriptions of the craft, the examination, and the humanoid beings. It was to play a large part in what happened two years later, a part she could not anticipate at that time. In her bewilderment over the incident, she and Barney had so recently experienced. On October the 19th, 1961, Walter Webb, lecturer on the staff of the Hayden Planetarium in Boston, opened his mail to read a letter from Richard Hall, then secretary of NICAP in Washington. As a scientific advisor to NICAP, Walter Webb occasionally investigated the more serious and puzzling UFO reports in the New England area, drafting a detailed document for Washington when the merits of the case warranted it. Hall's letter included a copy of the letter Betty Hill had written to Major Kehoe and suggested to Webb that it might be worthwhile to drive the 80 miles north of Boston to Portsmouth to investigate the case. Webb, who had joined the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory in Cambridge, Massachusetts in 1956, had been interested in unidentified flying objects since 1951, when, as a counselor at a boys' camp in Michigan, he had a sighting while training campers in the use of a telescope. Although his work with the Smithsonian Satellite Tracking Program required months of photographing satellites against a star background from a volcanic mountain in Hawaii during the International Geophysical Year, he had not personally observed any further UFOs since that experience at the boys' camp. His own sighting was totally convincing to him that such objects did exist, but his intense interest in the subject did not bloom fully until the summer of 1952, when the now famous, or infamous, group of sightings was made over Washington, D.C., recorded on several radar screens and confirmed by competent visual observers both in the air and on the ground. Many details on this event were quickly hushed up by the Air Force, and further intelligent study of the phenomena was rendered impossible. The sighting Webb had made with his nature study students at camp followed a pattern reported many times to NICAP. It was a clear summer night, and the three members of the group spotted a reddish-orange object traveling from east to west over the southern hills beyond Big Silver Lake in Michigan. At first, they suspected that it might have been an ordinary aircraft, but its movement shattered all conventional aerodynamic pattern. The object moved in a strange, undulating manner, creating a perfect sine wave course over the hills in the distance, a course in which the ups and down dips described a smooth, bell-shaped pattern along the tops of the hills. Webb's first reaction to Richard Hall's letter was reluctance. It was plain that this case involved a report of the movement of beings on the craft, and Webb was skeptical of this type of sighting. There had been in the past a rash of this sort of thing from highly irresponsible people, none of whom had provided any kind of rational documentation, and who insisted of talking about such incidents in the most exaggerated terms. Webb was determined not to become associated with any such irresponsible case. Webb drove up to Portsmouth on October the 21st, 1961, with his skeptical attitude unchanged. In his mind were thoughts of the sensational nature of the claim, the possibility that the Hills might have been seeking publicity, perpetrating a hoax, or suffering from a mental aberration. On the other hand, 
He felt that Betty Hill's letter was extremely literate, an honest and straightforward account of a frightening experience which had happened to the couple. He would reserve judgment until after his interview, which he resolved would be thorough and painstaking with special attention to finding flaws in the story. As an interviewer with scientific background, he was certain he could create a slip-up somewhere if the Hill's story was phony, and he would not hesitate to crack the story if he could. He arrived at the Hill's house at about noon. Barney was relieved to find an intelligent man who would not ridicule or poo-poo the experience, showing a demonstrable interest in the event. Barney was at the point where he detested the term flying saucer, although Webb's reference to UFOs was palatable to Barney. Further, he hoped that he could learn more about the subject from Webb to give some kind of answer to the mystery which still burned in him underneath the surface. To Betty, Webb appeared to be extremely professional and obviously was skilled and experienced in interviewing people. The interview began shortly after noon and continued with little interruption until 8 o'clock at night. I was so amazed, impressed by both the Hills and their account, Walter Webb later said, that we skipped lunch and we went straight through the afternoon and early evening. During that time, I cross-examined them together, separately, together, re-questioned them again and again. I tried to make them slip up somewhere, and I couldn't. I simply couldn't. Theirs was an ironclad story. They seemed to me to be a sincere, honest couple driving home from vacation, late at night on a lonely road, which suddenly something completely unknown and undefined descended on them, something entirely foreign or alien to their existence. During the interview, the Hills gave Webb their sketches, drawn independently, yet so similar. As the interview drew towards a close, Barney found himself almost reliving the incident. He could see himself standing in the road, confronted by the enormous object. It was a long grilling, Barney described the Webb interview. He began asking us questions, going over in detail all the experiences. First, we had to recite the story. Then he would have us go back and regress to different periods of the experience so that all the details would come out. Then I would come to this curtain, the moment I put the field glasses on the vehicle and saw the figure close up. And here, as with every other time I've tried to think it through, I could never get past this curtain in my memory. I could go no further, but I had the most eerie, chilly feeling, like watching a late show by myself at night. I would get chills as the ghost walks around the old haunted house, and I continually got chills when I got to that point of thought, whether it was during the web interview or at other times. I would get chills, I would shudder, and I would look briefly around the room, though I was safely in the comfort of my own home. Walter Webb had a map with him, and he carefully used it to fill in a complete timetable of the hill's journey. For some reason, although the hills explained in detail about the shiny spots on the car, they forgot to show them to him, and Webb forgot to ask to examine them. None of the three could later explain this oversight, although Webb said, I have tried to recall whether I saw those silvery spots they claimed to have seen on the car immediately following the sighting. To this day, I can't. I am sure I did not go out and look at the car. I knew of the spots. This is just poor reporting on my part, poor investigation. Maybe I just didn't think there was anything to these spots. In fact, in my initial report on the case, I reduced the spots and the beeping noises to a very low value. I mentioned them in an embarrassed in an embarrassed way. Well, here it is. But what is it? 
and I went on from there. I don't recall ever checking. If I recall it, Barney said, there was so much detail we got into discussing the position of the moon, when we saw it, identification of the stars and weather conditions, things like that, that it slipped our minds to get Webb to check the spots. At the close of the session, Webb suggested to the Hills that they drive back over the trip, trying to pin down the exact spots where varied events happened. The first notice of the object, the frequent short stops between Lancaster and Indian Head, and the exact spot near the flume in Indian Head where the closest encounter took place. The Hills agreed, and Barney gave up most of his reluctance to review the case, as a result of Walter Webb's intensive cross-examination. Driving back to Boston, Webb mentally reviewed the case. He was extremely impressed by it. His doubts about a hoax, about the Hill's competence, about an aberration were dispelled. I had read of such cases before, Webb said later, but this is the first time I had come in contact with apparently reliable witnesses who claim to have seen UFO occupants. Of course, we have to be very careful about such cases. Very careful. I was impressed that the Hills underplayed the dramatic aspects of the case. They were not trying to sensationalize. They did not seek publicity. They wanted me to keep this just to myself, confidential with NICAP. Barney's complete resistance to the idea of UFOs was most convincing. There were two different personalities here in a way. Barney, the more careful, scientific, accurate person, and Betty, the talker. But at the same time, she didn't overdo it either. Five days later, Webb prepared his report for NICAP in Washington, reviewing the incident in the minutest detail, including compass directions, position of the moon and planets, weather, and detailed descriptions of the object, including the sketches the Hills had given him. He concluded his lengthy report. It is the opinion of this investigator, after questioning these people for over six hours and studying their reactions and personalities during that time, that they were telling the truth, and the incident occurred exactly as reported, except for some minor uncertainties and technicalities that must be tolerated in any such observation where human judgment is involved, that is, exact time and length of visibility, apparent sizes of objects and occupants, distance and height of object, etc., Although their, their occupations do not especially qualify the witnesses as trained scientific observers, I was impressed by their intelligence, apparent honesty, and obvious desire to get at the facts and to underplay the more sensational aspects of the sighting. Mr. Hill had been a complete UFO skeptic before the sighting. In fact, the experience so jolted his reason and sensibilities that his mind evidently could not make the adjustment. In his conversation with me, and with his wife since the sighting, a mental block occurred when he mentioned the leader, peering out the window at him. Mr. Hill believes he saw something he doesn't want to remember. He claimed he was not close enough to see any facial characteristics on the figures, although at another time he referred to one of them looking over his shoulder and grinning, and to the leader's expressionless face. However, it was my view that the observer's blackouts were not of any great significance I think the whole experience was so improbable and fantastic to witness, along with the very real fear of being captured, added to imagined fears that his mind finally refused to believe what his eyes were perceiving, and a mental block resulted. Needless to say, neither Mr. Hill nor his wife were UFO doubters after the event. Both are now quite interested in the UFO subject and wish to know more about it 
and read as much as they can. Near the conclusion of the interview, I was asked many questions concerning the possible nature and origin of such, such objects. It should be noted that there were no electromagnetic disturbances, such as engine and headlight failure, which are mentioned in many other close-range UFO observations, and as we know, folks, made famous in the film Close Encounters of the Third Kind. However, the code-like beeping sounds on the rear of the car, which was a 1957 two-door hardtop, are an unexplained feature of the case. Neither did the witnesses notice any physiological effects, warmth burns, shock, or paralysis. Their dog did not appear to be alarmed at any time during the whole sighting. The Hills at this time had forgotten to tell Webb about several instances of Delzy's odd behavior. There were no other aircraft in the sky. Just for the record, not that there is any connection at all, the Hills sighting took place a day before Hurricane Esther's rains and winds hit New England. The Hills live in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Barney, 39, is a clerk at a Boston, Massachusetts post office at the South Station, and Betty, 41, is a child welfare worker employed at Portsmouth by the New Hampshire Department of Public Welfare. New Hampshire has furnished quite a number of UFO reports in recent years. For example, in 1960, NICAP reported seven sightings, six of them in the White Mountains area, especially around Plymouth. Of particular interest were the red cigar-shaped objects seen during April twice from Plymouth, on the 15th and the 25th, and once from West Thornton on the 28th. Another cigar was observed in the same area near Rumney on August the 24th. See NICAP report on the case. About eight years ago, Mrs. Hill's sister Janet was driving from Kingston, New Hampshire to Haverhill, Massachusetts on Route 125 and saw near Playstow, New Hampshire, a large glowing object in the sky with smaller objects flying around it. She ran to a house and got others to look at the strange apparition. They all saw the smaller objects fly into the larger one, which then took off. W.N. Webb, 1026, 1961. As a scientific advisor to NICAP, Webb had an extensive knowledge of the files of the organization and, of course, immediate access to them. Under the direction of Major Kehoe, a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy and former Marine Corps pilot, the organization constantly emphasized that it avoided any preposterous claims regarding UFOs and instructed its area representatives to disprove cases before accepting the sighting as related. Wherever possible, NICAP concentrated only on those sightings by pilots, radar men, police, engineers, technicians, and responsible and competent citizens. Major Kehoe's battle with the Air Force went on over decades. In the course of its investigation, NICAP was receiving over 40,000 letters a year, many of which were fresh reports of new sightings that were constantly cropping up in this country and throughout the world, and of course they still do to this day. Beginning in the spring of 1965, four years after the Hills encounter, reports of low-level and near-landing UFO sightings increased so that the organization was overwhelmed with documentation on the phenomena. The Oklahoma, Texas, and New Mexico sightings during August of 1965 involved nearly 40 members of the Oklahoma State Patrol with its teletypes clogged for three nights with UFO reports made by its officers and hundreds of reliable layman sightings corroborated by radar fixes from the Carswell and Tinker Air Force bases. In Exeter, New Hampshire, 
two seasoned policemen encountered an enormous UFO at low level, so low that one of the officers dropped to the ground and drew his gun. And that's a very famous case I'll be covering in future, folks. It's called the Incident at Exeter. During the fall and winter of 1965 to 1966, hundreds of other people in the area reported similar experiences documented by taped interviews and cross-examinations resulting in overwhelming evidence for the existence of these objects. Now, the infamous Michigan sightings in March of 1966 involved policemen and hundreds of reliable witnesses, and that brought the subject to a head, including a demand by Republican House leader Gerald Ford, maybe you've heard of him, maybe you've heard of him as President Ford, for a full-scale congressional investigation. In announcing his findings as a special consultant to the Air Force, Dr. J. Allen Hynek, chairman of the Department of Astronomy at Northwestern University and director of the Dearborn Observatory, was widely misquoted by the press regarding his statement that the sightings might be attributed to a spontaneous combustion of methane or marsh gas. This is the infamous swamp gas quote. What Dr. Hynek did say was that two of the sightings might be attributed to this phenomenon, but that these two cases by no means explain the hundreds of unidentified sightings by reliable people that were continuing to be reported around the world. In his press release, he urged that a scientific panel be set up to study the subject in depth, a statement that was largely ignored by the press. No shock. So this is when the U.S. Air Force and other groups went into overdrive to explain away these cases. This time period, which was the early to mid-1960s, was one of the most active in the history of UFOs, with cases such as the Lonnie Zamora case I've covered, folks, the Eagle River case, Kecksburg, the Portage County case, the Leveland, Texas case, and many, many more. Now, back in 1961, when Walter Webb was trying to fit the pieces of the Hill case together, none of these more recent cases and evidence were available, but there were thousands of other cases in the files. Now, these cases were not as well known to the general public because of the reluctance of the press to cover them and because the challenge to the Air Force secrecy had not become as strong. Webb also was familiar with the findings and research of the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization in Tucson, Arizona, another conservative nonprofit group, inclined to take more seriously the reports of intelligent beings associated with UFO sightings, where the craft hovered or landed. APRO, as that organization was known, was under the direction of L.J. Lorenzen, who was an engineer at the Kitt Peak National Observatory in Tucson. Among its advisors were Dr. Frank Salisbury, professor of plant physiology at Colorado State University, Dr. R. Leo Sprinkle, there's Leo again, assistant professor of psychology at the University of Wyoming, H.C. Dudley, chairman and professor of physics at the University of Southern Mississippi, Dr. James A. Harder, associate professor in the College of Engineering at the University of California, Berkeley, and others. Now, Leo Sprinkle would later go on to become famous for serving as a psychological consultant for the Condon Report, which was the 1969 report on UFOs, which led to further work on several abduction cases throughout the 1970s. Dr. Dudley once said, I recommend we use a bit of scientific curiosity to see whatever is the physics of this phenomenon so many people are describing as UFOs. 
Ascribing the phenomena as due to psychological aberration is nonsense. There is a series of physical phenomena that needs explaining. Let's get on with it in an open-minded, scientifically-oriented manner. Then let the data provide the answers. Dr. Harder of the University of California added, I think the evidence for the reality of unidentified flying objects is beyond reasonable doubt, and that the phenomena is deserving of scientific attention in spite of the existence of organizations on the lunatic fringe that have tended to discredit such attention. Among the organizations to which members of APRO's advisory staff were associated are the American Psychical Society, the American Psychological Association, the National Science Foundation, the National Institute of Health, and NASA. So in other words, folks, these were the cream of the crop, not dabblers in investigating and categorizing the UFO enigma. Among these APRO reports, Walter Webb found an unusual series of sightings investigated by Dr. Olavo Fontes in Brazil. Dr. Fontes, the APRO representative in the country, was a medical doctor and first vice president of the Brazilian Society of Gastroenterology and Nutrition. Webb discovered in Dr. Fontes's reports that the village of Pontaparan, Brazil, had been the scene of a strange series of UFO experiences over a period of two and a half months from December 1957 to March 1958. And folks, I'd never heard of these sightings until reading this, so I'm definitely going to be looking into that in future. They interested Webb in relation to the Hill case because of the persistent tendency of the objects to trail and follow individuals in vehicles. And again, folks, later you would see this in the Chupa Chupa case that I covered, the Kalaras case, in 1976-1977. But again, obviously that hadn't happened yet in 1961. So they interested Webb in relation to the Hill case because of the persistent tendency of the objects to trail and follow individuals and vehicles, much in the nature as, as the object in New Hampshire had followed the hills. For the most part, the objects in Brazil were Saturn-shaped, a shape often described in UFO sightings, along with the saucer and cigar shapes more commonly noted. During this extended time period, the objects buzzed jeeps and cars, mostly along the lonely roads near Pontaparan. The actions of the objects were interpreted as a probe to discover human reactions to their presence. An incident near Pontaparan, which was located on the southwestern frontier of Brazil, in an area with a landscape consisting of a forest-covered plateau known as the Mato Grosso, was the first one recorded. It was approximately 6.30 on the evening of December the 21st, 1957, when a farm woman, her driver and servant, and three young sons were driving towards town in a jeep. Two glowing objects, flying side by side, approached them and glided along the side of the road, oscillating in a strange, wobbling motion. They were described as metallic spheres, about 15 feet in diameter, encircled by a rotating ring. The upper half of the objects was fiery red. The lower half was silvery white. Each gave off a blinding glare with variable intensity. For two full hours, the objects followed the jeep, darting ahead of it and around it in circles. During the two times the driver stopped the jeep, one of the objects came down to just above the ground, while the other hovered high in the air. When the jeep entered Pontaparan, both objects climbed into the sky and disappeared. 
On February the 19th, two sightings were made near the town, one of them at 4 a.m. and the other at 10.30 p.m. The early morning sighting involved the same family, this time with the object dropping down over the road and hovering in front of the jeep, its red glow dimming and turning into a silvery color. The people in the jeep were afraid, as Barney Hill had been, in the field near Indian Head, that they were in imminent danger of being captured. The driver turned around and sped back to the village, where the object climbed to a high altitude and hovered over the town for half an hour or longer. Six other witnesses were rounded up, and the group loaded into two jeeps to drive out to the lonely section of road where the UFO had first been spotted. The object followed them, but remained at a distance, again climbing to a high altitude. It was not until 6 a.m. that it shot upward at tremendous speed and disappeared. Now, it is interesting that it seems like these sightings were happening at night, early in the morning or at night, so when the sun was down, and when these people headed towards town where there'd be more witnesses, these objects basically backed off and went to a higher altitude so they wouldn't be as easily spotted. That night, four highly respected citizens of the town, including a professor, a law student, a notary, and a tax clerk, went to the location on the road where the object had first hovered so low. At 10.30 p.m., the brilliant reddish object approached them from the sky, oscillating from side to side. When another object appeared to join it, the group panicked and drove back to town, and I don't blame them. On March the 3rd, a similar incident took place, with the object finally hovering a few feet above the road in front of the jeep. When the driver tried to ram it, it shot straight up and disappeared. Interestingly, over a dozen strikingly similar accounts to these were recorded in Exeter, New Hampshire, and many other locations in the U.S. between 1965 and 1966. What interested Webb was that these stories, and many others like them in both NICAP and APRA records, were close parallels to the Hill case, yet they had occurred in different parts of the world, and none of the cases knew of the others' experiences. On November the 2nd, 1961, Webb wrote the Hills to thank them for their cooperation, indicating that he had submitted his extensive report to NICAP. None of the three knew at the time that there was to be another, even more extensive report by Webb that would exceed his first in interest and impact. Now you've heard me discuss the following, at least in passing during the Black Knight satellite episode, so if it sounds familiar, you'll know why. About a month before Webb filed his NICAP report, so in October 1961, Robert Hohman, a, a staff scientific writer on both engineering and science for one of the world's most notable corporations in the electronic industry of the time, and C.D. Jackson, a senior engineer for the same company, went to Washington, D.C. to attend the 12th International Astronautical Congress as part of their regular routine. Both had been deeply involved in work on the space program and were and were preparing a paper on three experimental scientists of previous years, Nikola Tesla, David Todd, and Marconi. And again, I talked about Tesla and Marconi in the Black Knight episode, and this is why. Marconi was the acknowledged father of radio. Their paper was to examine the original data of these scientists in response to a rhetorical inquiry by the Office of the Director of Defense Research and Engineering. That question was, what research is being done to keep abreast of the scientific advances of the past, to see that there is not needless duplication of effort, 
The paper presented evidence and deductive scientific reasoning to indicate that Tesla, Todd, and Marconi observed laboratory data and related phenomena that suggested the possibility that they were monitoring interplanetary communications during the period of 1899 to 1924. They also noted that during the same period exactly, the Russian theorist Konstantin Tokolsky deducted a model of an intelligence existing independently of terrestrial influence. The paper examined the possibility of identical radio signals in this time span, emanating from Tau Ceti, a star some 11.8 light-years away from Earth. As technicians worked in advanced fields of science, both Hawkman and Jackson were interested in the data being accumulated on the UFO subject by NICAP and arranged to have lunch with Major Kehoe during the Astronautical Congress. Hoffman happened to mention to the Major that he had not heard of many recent UFO reports and wondered if the entire phenomena were dropping in frequency. Major Kehoe brought up the letter NICAP had just received from the Hills, one of the organization's most interesting cases in many months. Hoffman and Jackson were at once interested, but the story seemed so incredible that they were cautious in accepting it. On the one hand, if there were any truth to the story, they wanted to investigate it with an open mind. They debated the idea for several weeks and finally got in touch with Walter Webb, who had just completed his report. He sent them a copy, and they studied it carefully. Knowing of Webb's reputation for accuracy, they were considerably impressed. His appraisal of the character and competence of the Hills led them to take immediate action. On November the 3rd, 1961, they wrote the Hills the following. Dear Mr. and Mrs. Hill, This letter will introduce Mr. C.D. Jackson and myself. Our interest in writing you at this time concerns your recent experience of September the 19th through the 20th, 1961. Your participation in this event was brought to our attention by Major Donald Kehoe, with whom we had luncheon during the previous 12th International Astronautical Congress, Washington, D.C., on October 4th, 5th, 1961, and more specifically, through Mr. Webb, NICAP representative in the Boston area. Whereas our principal interest in this subject is concerned with the attempt to verify the origin of these vehicles according to existing scientific theory maintained by Professor Hermann Oberth, it's another interesting man there, of Germany. There is naturally a similar interest in trying to determine as well the meaning of the whole phenomenon. Your own recent experience might offer some help in this latter regard. Mr. Jackson and I would like to visit you at a time and place convenient to you. We are mature people associated with a major electronics and engineering corporation. Our discussion would be entirely objective. Having a close familiarity with most of the unclassified military literature dealing with this subject and dating back to 1947, interesting, 1947, Roswell, we would like to be of assistance in answering your questions as well as continuing our own investigation on this subject. For the purpose of scheduling, we would be able to visit you in Portsmouth, New Hampshire during the week of November the 13th, 1961, preferably the 18th to the 19th of that week. Sincerely yours, Robert E. Hoffman. Now, why have I included this? One of the quote-unquote facts spouted by debunkers over the year years is that no one was interested in their tale aside from the Blue Book report that the Hills pursued and the NICAP visit from Webb, again, which the Hills instigated. 
one can only assume that the debunkers wished to show that the case was not interesting and no UFO investigators were interested until the events of two years later. The above shows that that is patently untrue, because these men went looking for the hills. Hoffman and Jackson were not able to get together with the hills at their home in Portsmouth until a week beyond their suggested date, but on November the 25th, they arrived to review the story of the strange experience. Visiting the hills at the time was Major James MacDonald, an Air Force intelligence officer who had just recently retired from active duty and a close friend of the hills. Later in 1962, Betty and Barney Hill were to stand up for the major when he was married to one of Betty's close friends and associates in her welfare work. Further, when NICAP made additional inquiries about the character and reliability of the hills, Major MacDonald was to give them an unqualified recommendation. The group, Betty and Barney Hill, Robert Hoffman, C.D. Jackson, and Major MacDonald conferred for another long session beginning at noon and running almost until midnight. The Hills were impressed by the businesslike and professional attitude of Hoffman and Jackson, and Barney again reflecting surprise that so much attention was being directed towards a subject he still had lingering doubts about in spite of his own traumatic experience. Hoffman and Jackson inquired about many facets in the case that puzzled Barney, particularly an inquiry as to whether there were any nitrates or nitrate derivatives in the Hills car. The only thing I could think of that possibly had some connection with nitrates, Barney later said, was gunpowder. I did have about a dozen shotgun shells in the car, left over from a trip to the south when I had practiced shooting at tin cans on my uncle's farm. But aside from that, I couldn't think of anything. The reason they were asking, they said, was that in several close UFO encounters, the people had been in rural areas where they were exposed to nitrates or nitrate fertilizer. Then the realization hit me. Betty had left the bone meal fertilizer in the trunk of the car before the trip, and I hadn't bothered to take it out. But who knows? Maybe it does have significance, maybe it doesn't. It was interesting that they should bring it up when we had forgotten all about it, and they asked a lot of questions that started me thinking. Questions like, did we have anything new in the car? Any new object? And had it disappeared? There had been reports, apparently, of people having close sightings, and something they had recently purchased had disappeared. They asked if anything had disappeared out of our car, but this was two months later, and we had a lot of junk in there. I couldn't remember. One of the questions they did ask was, why did you take this trip? This might seem like an unrealistic question, but on reflection, it's not too far-fetched. Number one, there was no preparation for the trip. I'd gone to Boston that night and had worked and was returning to Portsmouth that day. I decided during work, well, I think I would like to go to Niagara Falls and then return via Montreal. Betty had the week off anyway, and I was able to call in and get an extension of the weekend for several days, so we packed our car that night. Betty's comments are similar. This was how impulsive it was. The only money we had was in our pockets. Saturday the banks were closed, so we couldn't even cash a check. I think the amount between the two of us was less than $70, so the question they asked were interesting, mainly because we had never thought along those lines. So yeah, again, folks, you got to remember back then, there were no credit cards, there were no ATM cards, so and the banks closed on Saturday, so you had to go and write a check to get cash, and you couldn't do it over the weekend. And banks at that time, they weren't these huge multinational banks 
where you could find your bank in every city. So going up to Canada and back, they probably there was nowhere they could get more money. They provoked a lot of thought in both of us, mentioning the remote possibilities of life existing on planets involved with Alpha Centauri or Tau Ceti, which was news to me. I don't think I've ever heard of them. The questions were so far out that I just couldn't see what relationship they had to our experience and this business of nitrates. At that time, I had all kinds of plants in the house. In fact, in the living room, I had an avocado tree that touched the ceiling. They walked around, looked at my plants over, and asked me what kind of fertilizer I used on them and things like this. And while they were here, they were mentally reconstructing the whole trip. One of them said, what took you so long to get home? They said, look, you went this distance, and it took you these hours. Where were you? Well, when they said this, I thought, I was really going to crack up. I got terrified, and I even put my head on the table, and I went back over the trip in my mind, recalling, or trying to recall, that vague moment when it looked as if the moon had been on the ground. They tried to reconstruct that time sequence, and they said, you couldn't have seen the moon on the ground at that time, because apparently at that period, they knew what time the moon had set that night, and the moon had set fairly early. It just wouldn't tie in with that time business. They suggested that we check and find just when the moon set at the time, because it apparently wasn't the moon that we saw, or thought we saw. Then this whole lapse of time business, I really became upset about that. I became suddenly flabbergasted. Barney added in his words, To think that I realized for the first time that at that rate of speed I always travel, we should have arrived home at least two hours earlier than we did. Normally, for me to travel from Colebrook to here, we would have left at 10.05 that night, actually takes less than four hours, even figuring out the time period we stopped on the highway, and at no time did we stop for more than five minutes. I was baffled as to what the reason was for us leaving Colebrook at 10.05 p.m. and arriving back here at dawn, somewhere around 5 a.m., nearly seven hours instead of less than four. Even if I allowed more time than I know we took at those roadside stops, there still were at least two hours missing out of the night's trip. To the entire group in the Hill living room that afternoon, the missing time period became a major mystery. The Hills tried, but simply could not account for it, nor could they account for the 35 miles between Indian Head and Ashland, during which their recollection amounted to almost nothing. They were now more puzzled and confused than ever. For the first time, it fully dawned on them that they were facing a period of simultaneous amnesia, experienced by each of them at the same time, falling roughly between the first series of beeps that emanated from the back of the car and the second series of beeps that encountered somewhere near Ashland, 35 miles to the south. The thought that plagued everyone at the meeting was that while it was unusual enough for one person to be struck suddenly with a temporary period of amnesia, it was very strange indeed for two intelligent people to experience it together under such fantastic conditions. As a hard-headed former intelligence officer in the Air Force, Major James McDonald groped for some kind of answer to the puzzle. UFOs are constantly being discussed in the Air Force, much more so than the official statements from the Pentagon would indicate. Officially, the Air Force position requires that no member of the force can report any incidents to the public. All information at the time was channeled through the Foreign Technology Division at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and in turn, any release of that information could only be made by the Office of the Secretary of the Air Force at the Pentagon. 
The fact remains that many Air Force pilots and radar men did talk, and those who directly came in contact with the objects revealed stories of incredible speeds, right angle turns, and maneuvers that were impossible to duplicate by any aircraft known to the military. Even the most sophisticated weapons were said to have been used in an attempt to bring the UFOs down without success. Major McDonald had had no direct experience with the subject of UFOs in his Air Force career, but he had a profound respect for it. He felt that it was a subject to be viewed with an open mind, each case considered on its own merits, and that only first-hand accounts had any value. He was also aware that many reports of UFOs consisted of an observer's honest mistakes, perhaps by confusing shooting stars, Venus, shadows on a windshield, or St. Elmo's fire with unidentified craft. And again, I'd agree with that. Many, many of these cases are misidentified items. On the other hand, he was aware of the many cases involving technically qualified people of impeccable character whose close encounters with the objects were clearly observed and unexplainable in, con in conventional aerodynamic terms. He realized the complete probability of the phenomenon, that the valid reports were by no means unrealistic or absurd, and that extraterrestrial life was not only possible, but entirely probable. Space programs on the Earth included impact landings on Venus and a soft landing on the Moon, so why couldn't the reverse process be taking place? He was fascinated by the probe that Hoffman and Jackson were conducting. Impressed by their attention to detail and their posing of interesting and imponderable questions. But most critical of all, what happened in the two hours that the Hills suffer, suffered double amnesia? What could have happened? What did happen? When the discussion focused on this critical point, the problem narrowed down to finding a way to discover what happened during that missing time period, a way to penetrate the unyielding curtain that began to descend when, when Barney Hill looked through the binoculars and came down completely when the first series of beeps sounded in the speeding car. What was missing was not only the two hours of time, but a distance of 35 miles, for which there was little accounting. It was at this point in the informal gathering that Major McDonald suggested the possibility of medical hypnosis. He had, during his Air Force career, became somewhat familiar with the subject and was impressed with its valid use under controlled medical conditions. He was also aware of its dangers in the hands of stage hypnotists or other inexperienced people. He knew that hypnotherapy and, and hypnoanalysis had been used in cases involving amnesia, producing some strikingly dramatic results in the rehabilitation of servicemen suffering from war neurosis, which is sometimes described as battle fatigue or shell shock, or in modern terms, PTSD. In a sense, he reasoned, the Hills had experienced a violent trauma much like shell shock, a condition that often produced temporary amnesia which had frequently been treated successfully by medical hypnosis. When Major McDonald suggested hypnosis, the group was immediately interested. Hawkman and Jackson, by now, had no doubts about the character and competence of the Hills, but they were aware that this strange case needed further documentation. Major McDonald, who had discussed the case many times with the Hills, was convinced of their sincerity and anxious to help them overcome the nagging doubts and fears. On several occasions, Barney had said to McDonald, Jim, how do I know that this thing happened? How do I know that I wasn't just seeing things? I'm in this terrible position where I really do know it happened, and I can't get myself to believe it. 
It's bugging me so seriously that my ulcers are kicking up, just at the point where they were getting better. It was agreed that the idea of medical hypnosis was a good one. But the problem became one of finding the proper medical man to take the case, or if, indeed, he thought it was wise to do so. Obviously, the case should not be entrusted to any but the most competent psychiatric specialist, but no one immediately came to mind. Hoveman, Jackson, and Major MacDonald agreed to make inquiries, and the Hills both felt the idea had merit. I agree with the idea wholeheartedly, Betty later said, because the moment they suggested hypnosis, I thought of my dreams, and this was the first time I began to wonder if they were more than just dreams. Then I really got upset over my dreams. I thought, well now, if I have hypnosis, I'll know one way or another, because this was, I thought, God, well, maybe my dreams are something that really happened. I also thought about the strange experience while driving with Barney in the car when we slowed down for the other car standing in the road. I really panicked at that time, and when hypnosis was suggested, I thought of that incident too. And I thought to myself, why did I react that way? I've never done that before in my life. My reaction to the hypnosis idea, Barney added, was, first, what are the effects of hypnosis? What is it about? The experience of it. What will I feel like going under? I was mildly reluctant, without saying so, to submit myself to such a thing, unless it was for someone I could have complete confidence in. But what overruled my apprehension about that was the thought that once and for all, for all times, this might clear up Betty and her nonsense about her dreams. I further thought that the hypnosis process might also explain the mental blockage I had at Indian Head, and that the whole trip that seemed to be missing for the 35 miles from Indian Head to Ashland, so I felt that this could be something I would get a full understanding about, and of course it would clear up Betty's dreams to the point that for once and all, once and for all I could say, look Betty, they're dreams, they have nothing whatsoever to do with the UFO sighting. You see, Betty kept on wondering about what happened between the two series of beeps. I didn't think anything happened between the two. All I thought was that it would get me beyond that point of standing on the highway, looking at these moving figures in the craft, the one that kept looking back at me with those eyes. He gave me the impression, and this was dim in my memory, but there was just the same, that he was a very capable person. And there can be no nonsense here. We have business to attend to. These were all thoughts going through my mind. As to how this person was affecting me, I wanted to get beyond that point, and this was the reason that Jim McDonald's suggestion appealed to me. It was to be some time before the Hills were able to follow up the suggestion. In the meantime, the compulsion grew in both of them that they must return to the scene of the incident, as Walter Webb had suggested, and relive the experience, trying to recapture the elusive shreds of memory. It wasn't until after the holiday season that the Hills were able to think about returning to the scene of the encounter. The inevitable Christmas bustle helped suspend their lingering doubts and questions, if only on a temporary basis. Finally, in February of 1962, a series of pilgrimages began that were to continue for many months, in all seasons. At first they would go two or three times a month. Later they were to skip many weeks at a time but always with the same questions to answer. What happened during the inexplicable blackout? Where did Barney spin the car off the side road? And if he did, what happened? The idea of hypnosis was temporarily tabled. Neither Hoveman, Jackson, nor Major MacDonald could suggest a psychiatrist, and Betty, especially, 
hoped that the return trip to the area might spark a chain of memory. Once again, Barney was ambivalent about taking the trips. Betty could overcome Barney's resistance by suggesting that they look for a new and different restaurant on each trip, a particular weakness of Barney's. A man after my own heart, I have to say. That's also a weakness of mine. They would often pack a lunch to economize on the trip up so that they could later splurge at dinner. Or they might leave Portsmouth at 3 in the afternoon on a Sunday, sorry, on a Saturday, drive along Route 4 towards Concord, then swing northerly on the expressway, planning to reach Route 3 at dusk. They reasoned that after dusk the area would be as it was the night of the encounter, the landscape more provoking to their senses if they were to discover the vaguely defined road that they half recalled from the limbo period of their amnesia. On one occasion that winter, Betty, with a flash of insight, recalled a vague vision of a diner she thought they had passed near Ashland shortly after the second series of beeps had brought them back to their senses. They had pulled up beside it since it was the first lighted place they had come across in many miles. It had turned out to only be a nightlight and their hopes for a hot cup of coffee had been dashed. They would drive along Route 3 on several back roads branching off the main road, but they could find no sign of a diner of any kind. They would bicker about where they might have traveled, or which of the byways off Route 3 they might have made a turn onto. No clear recall came back to them. At Cannon Mountain, Indian Head, and Lancaster, they would reenact frequent stops, in the hope that their repetition of the process might stimulate their memories. There was even disagreement as to where they had made road stops before the amnesia set in, although the general areas were firm in their minds. They brought the binoculars with them, but had only a faint hope that they would see the object again. Most often, they would plan the reenactments systematically, winding northward up US-3 to a point above Cannon Mountain, then turning around and beginning the trip back down to Portsmouth the same night. Even with frequent side excursions to find the lost road, they could not account for the inordinate length of time it took them to reach Port Portsmouth the night of the incident. On one occasion... They stopped by a small restaurant near Woodstock, where several residents told them of frequent sightings of the objects hovering over Route 3, sometimes remaining suspended over an hour. The UFOs had been reported to the Air Force, but nothing further had been heard back at that time. The Hills had no fear, no apprehension on these trips. The challenge of the mystery overrode the shock of the experience. They would park on a turnout with a sweeping view of the mountain valleys during a moonlit night and sit and look at the stars and the sky, as if for some clue that might arise to bring back the memories. During one winter night, Barney recalled, we found ourselves on a road that seemed to go nowhere, a lonely mountain road that I cursed myself for turning onto. As we got deeper and deeper into the valley, the road deteriorated into a mass of snow. About midnight, I found myself trying to turn the car around, hoping that I wouldn't get stuck in the snow, and furious with Betty for suggesting driving up into the mountains. I thought, why go through all of this? Why not just forget the whole thing? Or if we can't forget it, why make such an effort to relive all this, or think we can bring back those lost two hours? I don't know why we weren't apprehensive, to tell the truth. Vaguely, I hope to see the thing again, I think. I can't even say. I did want to see it again. What I found most interesting about all these trips was that we never seemed to agree completely. We would bicker and become mildly quarrelsome. Betty would insist I should take a right turn, and I would insist on making a left. 
But what bothered me still was this question. Why did I have so much apprehension that night at Indian Head, and yet I had none on returning to the mountains? Scheduling our time to be there late at night. I don't know what the answer to that is. The return trips were fruitless. Always the same curtain of darkness for Barney after the critical moment at Indian Head. Always. The blind veil for Betty after the strange series of beeps as they drove frantically away from Indian Head, with Barney apparently in great emotional distress at the wheel. Always the blank between Indian Head and Ashland. So when we return to the story of Betty and Barney Hill, we will finally get to the core of the tale, the events that have been so controversial from the time they were first recounted 58 years ago and will be for many years yet to come. Well, my friends, I will talk to you very soon because the Halloween Spooktacular is pretty much I'm going to go straight out of this, finish up the uh, post-production, get this episode out, and then I'll be straight into starting on that. So again, I'll leave you with that quote from J. Allen Harnick, which is, Ridicule is not a part of the scientific method, and the public should not be taught that it is. Take care, my friends. I'll talk to you soon. Stay safe.